The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Far-left mob wins again. New York Times opinion editor James Bennett forced to resign after employees revolted over the paper's decision to publish an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton. They totally surrendered to a woke child mob from their own newsroom that apparently gets triggered if they're presented with any opinion contrary to their own. Staffers of the New York Times in the newsroom and in the opinion section were outraged. They were horrified. They said it was inappropriate to publish an op-ed like like that. Buildings matter too. It's not just three words. Those three words on top of years and years of complaints within the Philadelphia Inquirer that we were not devoted to diversity. I've been struck with how dramatically things have changed in the United States. People who valued free speech are now totally intimidated. People who thought that as an American, you had every right to stand up for what you believe are now being told yes, and then you get fired. All of the academics who for 100 years talked about the importance of intellectual freedom, the notion that tenure meant you couldn't get fired, et cetera, they've all sold out. And they're now part of sort of a lemming-like rush to say, oh, no. If you don't do exactly what you're supposed to do, you're in deep trouble. It reminds me a lot, having last year written Trump versus China and done a lot of research on how the Chinese communists had evolved. It's really remarkably like Maoism. When Mao was ahead of China, they went through a whole period where they would have sessions where you could admit to everybody else how bad you were. 
And if you admitted well enough, then you had been rehabilitated, but you had to get in a group and say, oh yes, I did the following nine terrible things. And it finally go totally out of control. And young people took advantage of it and were destroying things. And finally the army moved in and stopped all of them. But not until many, many people, including the current general secretary of the Communist Chinese Party, Xi Jinping, had been severely affected. He was sent out to work out in the countryside. His father was sent out to work in the countryside. Even somebody as powerful as Deng Xiaoping, his grandson was thrown off of the third floor of a building at Beijing University and crippled for life because he didn't fit the particular moment. So as I'm watching all this as a historian, I see a really disturbing new movement. This is a movement where the new totalitarians on the left control the narrative and the agenda and demand that those who disagree lose their jobs. And what makes it particularly dangerous is that these totalitarians are almost totally reinforced by the propaganda media, whether it's the New York Times or it is Washington Post or ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, and CNN. I want to set a baseline here as a historian and as a citizen that the Constitution was written to protect freedom. Remember, the founding fathers' number one goal was to avoid tyranny. They had been deeply influenced by their study of the English Civil War. And they really understood that at the end of the fight between Parliament and the King, when King Charles I was beheaded, that in a very short time, it degenerated into a dictatorship called the Commonwealth under Cromwell. And Cromwell was a classic dictator. The founding fathers were trying to design a constitution which would minimize the opportunity to go to dictatorship. I think the way they opened the constitution was very, very important. Remembering that they did this based on the Declaration of Independence, which was the most radical pro-freedom document in history up to that point. Because remember, the people writing the Declaration of Independence in 1776 are writing it in a world in which the normal belief is that power comes from God to the king and then trickles down, but that the king is the center of power, the king is the center of defining rights. There's a top-down power comes from God through the king. You only as a commoner have some right to power based on the fact that the king has granted it to you. And what made the Magna Carta so extraordinarily important was that it was the first time you had a statement because the king was desperate for money and all the nobles got together and they said, look, unless you sign this great charter, which is what Magna Carta means, we're not going to give you the money. And he was in a position of great weakness at that point. And so King John said, all right, I'll sign it. Now he tried as fast as he could to get away from it. But that became the benchmark. That's why if you go to the U.S. Capitol, at the very center of the Capitol, there's a copy of the Magna Carta because it really was the beginning of defining that the king only operated with the permission, first of the nobles, then of the commoners, and ultimately of an elected parliament. This had been a long developing thing by the time of the English Civil War. And the founding fathers knew that when it all broke down, that there was an enormous danger of sliding into dictatorship. They defined a totally new and radically different model. And they said in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, 
that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, what this meant was that you as a commoner, as an everyday person, you had an endowment directly from God, not from the king, not from the government, directly from God. And that that endowment included rights that could not be alienated. That is, alienation meant taken away from you. So you couldn't lose these rights. And among them, there were three that were particularly vital, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which in their generation meant something a little more profound than happiness would mean today. It really meant the pursuit of virtue, of a life worth being lived by somebody who wanted to do the right thing by their society. So that's the baseline for creating America. And it's a remarkably radical baseline because it says God has given you these rights and the king and the government can't take them away from you, which is in a very real sense what the fight was all about, which led ultimately to the freedom of the United States. But now the founding fathers, having won their freedom, watched years of the system not quite working. And so the founding fathers said, we need a structure. We need to make sure that we have an agreement, a contract that will enable us to preserve our freedom and to block any future Cromwell, any future dictator. And so they met in Philadelphia for 55 days. Ironically, in the modern world, they met in secret. They opened every session with a prayer. And when the deadlock got so bad, it looked like it was all going to break down. Benjamin Franklin, the oldest man at the Constitutional Convention, proposed, let's stop for one full day and have a day of prayer and fasting. And they brought in a famous local preacher and they listened to him. And that created a spirit of trying to find a compromise and a way of working together. And at the end of 55 days, they produced this amazing document. So if you think of the Declaration of Independence as a statement of purpose, then the Constitution is a statement of structure designed to protect it. And I think it's important to look at exactly how the Constitution begins because they're trying to make a larger visionary statement before they get into the details. And what they're saying at the very beginning is really central to how America has operated ever since. Because they start with the idea of we the people. They're not saying we the states, we the politicians, or we the lawyers. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. I wanna emphasize a couple of pieces of this because in this very brief opening statement, they say that we have to keep working to perfect the union. Justice is a very central part of this, which is why they would fully understand the concerns about finding a way to achieve justice for African-Americans and finding a way to achieve justice for everyone who is a part of America. They would ensure domestic tranquility. Now, look at the murder rate this week in Chicago, New York, Seattle, St. Louis, Portland long way from domestic tranquility. 
provide for the common defense, which is why they were very big on making sure that we were capable of protecting ourselves. So they wanted to protect us domestically. That's ensure domestic tranquility. And they wanted to protect us from foreign threats. That's the common defense. But they went further. They want to promote the general welfare. They want people to be better off. They want people to have a better future. Finally, they want to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. That is, this is being written for all time. This is a timeless document that is capable of providing a better future for almost everybody. Now, securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity has been an ongoing process. Initially applied largely to property of white males. Then gradually more and more people had access to it. Even as early as the revolutionary period, there were African-Americans petitioning to get out of slavery. And in state after state, they began to adopt anti-slavery provisions. Even at the very beginning, there were great concerns about the role of women. And in fact, John Adams' wife writes him and says, do not forget the ladies. And women begin to play a bigger and bigger role in America. So this is what we've inherited. And what's frightening about what's going on right now is through a combination of total ignorance and propagandistic brainwashing, the radical left has forgotten the values of the founding fathers and forgotten what made America a unique place. And in fact, I would say of our original history, the most accurate parallel to what we're currently watching is the Salem witchcraft trials of 1692. Remember, the Salem witchcraft trials start with gossip, ultimately kill a number of people, and have been used ever since as a symbol of the mob run amok. Look at Arthur Miller's great play, The Crucible. You really get this sense of the Salem witchcraft trials are a perfect model for what happens when the mob loses any sense of balance in any sense of fact, in any sense of justice. So I've really struck over the last couple of months with how many people are being directly hurt by this new left-wing totalitarianism. This is the first episode in a new series I'm calling Shut Your Mouth, the new totalitarians of the left, in which I will discuss how this new movement is affecting us in media, academics, sports, business, the federal bureaucracy, entertainment, and politics. And in our final episode, we want to hear from you. What have you experienced in your own life? So I'm going to start here with some examples of how the left has taken over the media, because I think, frankly, they're so weird. I grew up really being trained by a local weekly newspaper editor named Paul Walker in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And Walker was in the old school of newsmen who actually covered the news. His great hero was Frank Kent, who had worked at that time for the Baltimore Sun, and who was just interested in reporting what actually happened. He wasn't trying to write as a social critic. That's really my background. And at the time I was growing up, the New York Times really was a great newspaper. You could argue whether it or the London Times was the greatest paper in the world. There's no question, with the exception of some occasions, there'd always been a certain level of anti-Semitism at the Times, and there'd always been in the 1930s, totally dishonest reporting on Russia, where literally we now know in retrospect, the New York Times correspondent in Russia in the 30s consciously cooperated with other Western reporters to avoid covering the huge problem in Ukraine, where there was a deliberate politically forced famine that killed millions of people. So in that sense, there's always been a certain blemish at the Times, 
but it was still overall a great newspaper. But now, let's take a couple of case studies, and you'll see how much the New York Times is becoming a perfect example of left-wing totalitarianism. One of the things that actually made me decide to focus on this series was the resignation from the New York Times of the editorial page editor, James Bennett. What happened to him was a perfect example that when you start dealing with totalitarians, you're never liberal enough because they keep setting a new standard that's more and more and more extreme. According to the Times' own reports, on June 3rd, the paper published an op-ed by Republican Senator Tom Cotton entitled, quote, Send in the Troops. Cotton's a conservative senator from Arkansas, and his article argued that the U.S. government should use the military if the protests and riots spread after the horrific killing of George Floyd, and they became too dangerous. Four days after publishing it, Bennett resigned because he had dared to publish Cotton's opinion. It was simply too much for the liberal newsroom to have a Republican opinion with which they disagreed in their own paper. According to the Times, publisher A.G. Sulzberger wrote a note to the staff saying, quote, last week we saw a significant breakdown in our editing processes, not the first we've experienced in recent years, close quote. Sulzberger later said in an interview that, quote, both of us concluded that James would not be able to lead the team through the next leg of change that is required, close quote. Bennett then had to apologize to the entire staff. This is Maoism. He had to apologize to the entire staff for publishing the op-ed because it had a, quote, overly harsh tone. By the way, I just want to point out that the New York Times now has published an article by a Chinese communist attacking the United States and attacking a relative of the writer. So if you're a Chinese communist who wants to attack the United States, the New York Times will publish you and nobody will be fired. If you are a conservative United States senator who also, by the way, was a veteran of service in the Middle East, and you publish something conservative, then that's unforgivable and the person who publishes it will be fired. And so the Bennett case made me really stop because Bennett had to apologize one time before because they had actually had a headline that offended people because it was too neutral when it was supposed to have been anti-Trump. But I thought, if the New York Times now has a newsroom filled with radical leftists to such a degree that and many of them said it made them feel, quote, unsafe. So you can publish a Chinese communist. That doesn't make you feel unsafe. But if you publish a U.S. senator, that makes you feel unsafe. We can't hardly have a better case study of what the totalitarianism of the left is like. Bennett's resignation was occurring about the same time that Stan Wyshnowski, the top editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, was being forced out. Wyshnowski resigned after running an article in the paper with the headline, quote, Buildings Matter Too. This article, not an opinion piece, was simply expressing the real cost of physical damage to buildings in the city of Philadelphia. This caused a profound outrage among that paper's radical staff. Many in the newsroom performed a sick out, which meant they used sick leave to avoid coming to work because they apparently didn't believe enough in the cause to forego being paid. That is, they didn't want to give up their money. They just wanted to feel virtuous while they didn't show up. The paper itself then ran a public apology to its readers for the headline. Listen to this. It said, quote, 
The Philadelphia Inquirer published a headline in Tuesday's edition that was deeply offensive. We should not have printed it. We're sorry and regret that we did. We also know that an apology on its own is not sufficient. The headline accompanied a story on the future of Philadelphia's buildings and civic infrastructure in the aftermath of this week's protest. The apology continued, quote, the headline offensively riffed on the Black Lives Matter movement and suggested an equivalence between the loss of buildings and the lives of black Americans. That is unacceptable, close quote. Now notice, hidden in this is something that the left doesn't want to admit. They said, the future of Philadelphia's buildings and civic infrastructure in the aftermath of this week's protests, because these protests involve substantial damage to the buildings and the infrastructure, something the media has desperately tried to avoid saying. So after serving 20 years at the Inquirer and leading the newsroom for 10 years, Wisnowski stepped down. He was forced out for one headline. Now, another example, on July 14th, two more key people, one at the New York Times, one at the New York Magazine, left their posts and did so in a way that really put the target right on the radicals in the newsrooms. Barry Weiss, a self-proclaimed centrist opinion editor and writer at the New York Times, left her job because she found working there to be toxic. She said she regularly dealt with open hostility from coworkers because she didn't adhere to the Times groupthink. Ironically, she was hired to work at the paper in 2017 because the newsroom and editorial staff realized it completely missed the mark on the 2016 election. And it was feebly trying to win back the trust of conservatives. Well, enough of that. In a striking resignation letter to Salzburger, which she published on her website, Weiss wrote, quote, but the lessons that ought to have followed the election, lessons about the importance of understanding other Americans, the necessity of resisting tribalism, the centrality of the free exchange of ideas to a democratic society have not been learned. Instead, a new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at this paper. The truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. Now, as a historian, I can tell you what that is. That is Leninism. That is exactly what Lenin taught. It's exactly what they did at the Soviet Union. And it's exactly what Deng Xiaoping learned when he went to the Lenin University in the 20s and learned how to be a good, solid communist in the Leninist-Stalinist tradition. Communists believe, and Xi Jinping would totally agree with the New York Times left-wing staff, that it is the job of the elite to train the rest and correct them when they fail to learn the lessons. This is perfectly Orwell's 1984 vision of totalitarianism, which I recommend to everybody if you want to understand where we're going and how sick it is. Now, Weiss, the same week, was matched by Andrew Sullivan, who's a columnist at New York Magazine, who expressed concern that a woke culture is crowding out dissenting opinion, also left his post on July 14th. By the way, he is not a conservative columnist. His editor-in-chief, David Haskell, wrote, quote, Andrew and I agreed that his editorial project and the magazines, though overlapping in many ways, were no longer the right match for each other. Now, Andrew Sullivan is a center-left writer, was one of the most effective and powerful gay writers in America. He's a man I've debated before. I have enormous respect for him. 
But he had found that even at New York Magazine, there was no space because he wasn't radical enough and he wasn't willing to do exactly what he was told by the radical left. Now, these are just a few examples of how the radical left is controlling the media, which is why I describe it as a propaganda media, not a news media, and how they censor political speech. Instead of accepting dissenting opinions, supposed journalists, now who really ought to be called propagandists, now rally for editors to be fired on points of view that differ from the radical consensus are allowed to be expressed. There are a range of other examples of how people have lost their jobs because there are different viewpoints, and we're going to get to them in a series of briefings. You're going to be able to read all of them at Gingrich360.com slash shut your mouth. I think it's a very important project, and I think you'll be very sobered and very angered when you realize how many Americans are now suffering because they thought they were free, and they thought they were allowed to have their own opinion, and they thought this was a country where you could speak up without fear. And as you'll discover, in area after area, we're now dominated by totalitarians who control the universities, they control many of the big corporations, they control the news media, and we are in the fight of our lives to preserve the Constitution and to preserve the liberties which we were guaranteed in the Declaration of Independence. So I hope that you'll listen in the future, tell your friends and neighbors about this whole series. I think it's very important that we arouse every American to understand that the very nature of their constitutional liberty is now at risk. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick 
and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a summer night in Paris, American artist Lee Krasner is drifting off to sleep when the phone rings. On the line, news that her husband, Jackson, is dead. Jackson, as in the painter Jackson Pollock. He might, to this day, be the most mythologized figure in American art. But how much of the story that we've been told about him is just that, a myth? On Death of an Artist, season two, Krasner and Pollock, the story about how the art world changed forever. And the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting. Just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.